This is a trigger warning for suicide and mental health struggles. Burn It All Down would like to take a moment to offer condolences to the family and community of Katie Meyer, a 22-year-old goalkeeper of Stanford women's soccer team. Katie was a part of the Cardinals' 2019 NCAA title-winning team and wowed the country with her tenacity and her spirit. She died one week ago. We are holding space and sharing the heartbreak with the Myers family, the Stanford community, and all young athletes who are grieving and devastated at this time. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the USA is 1-800-273-8255. And in Canada, it is 1-833-456-4566. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Shireen here, and I'm joined by Lindsay and Brenda, but today I am the conductor at this beautiful orchestra of brilliance and sports discussion. Today on the show, we talk about owners of sports teams, leadership, bad apples, and we dive into different ways they operate within these teams. Before we get started, happy International Women's Day. Tell me about a time that you were starstruck upon meeting a woman you absolutely respect and admire. Like, fangirl stories, please. Lindsay, you go first. Okay, I am sure that there have been times in my life that this has happened, but I just cannot think of any. I really think it's like the vast majority of my life that I've met people, it's been in a work context, and I just have to put up a certain armor, do you know what I mean? Like, around that. I mean, asking Venus Williams questions in a press conference very early on in my career, like I was freaking out, but I didn't totally fangirl, right? Like I didn't, you have to put up like a different mentality, I think. But so I'm going to go a little bit different with this. This is this is actually embarrassing. This is going to sound a little bit like I'm objectifying her and I don't mean to, but I will say that when I saw Sylvia Fowles in person, when I walked into the Minnesota Lynx locker room one time, and saw her cheekbones and eyes like right next to me, right up close, I was actually speechless for a minute. Like I was flustered because like those eyes, they just like pierce through you. And she's just like the most wonderful person ever. So she makes you not feel starstruck around her because she's just very, very, very kind. Yeah. Um, I thought for sure, Lindsay, because it's also coming up to the uh, three-year anniversary of the five of us meeting in person in New York City. It was International Women's Day that we all met. So I figured that you would talk about how we all cried together in the lobby of the hotel in Long Island. That didn't actually happen. It happened in my head. But I was elated. Oh, do you know what it was? It was when I met Shireen. That was the (laughs) fangirl moment for me. It's because I blacked out out of like fangirlness. That's why I didn't bring it up. So yes. Thank you for that memory. Yeah. yeah. And, and not that I was fishing for that particular answer, but yes. Oh, no, not at all. No, you, no fishing. <laughs> so I am like, I kind of wear my excitement on my sleeve. I try to be composed. I mean, there's certain instances, like I've interviewed Christine Sinclair, an oppressor. I've interviewed, interviewed Julie Chu, Marie-Philippe Poulain. And you're right. Like Lindsay's absolutely right. You have to have this veneer and of professionalism. And then inside you're very excited. Except there was two times that I had absolutely zero chill. One of them was Hillary Knight. Because I don't actually cover the U.S. women's hockey team per se. So I was like, it's okay for me to get a little bit excited here. I was very excited. Hillary Knight is very worth getting excited about. Um, But the other one where I was absolutely, and y'all won't probably believe this, I was speechless and I I couldn't move. I literally didn't have words to formulate. And it's when I met Naomi Klein. Um, I'm a huge longtime admirer of her work. Um, I think she's probably one of Canada's most brilliant thinkers. She's incredible. So I was at a very small event and she was there and I had just had ACL surgery in 2014 and I was on crutches and I had to keep my leg elevated. We're at a very small restaurant in Toronto. And my brother happened to be at this event and he went over and got her and said, my sister 
can't even make her way over to you. And she's, she loves you so much. And she sat down with me and in the best of Shireen, I talked about my cat with her for 35 minutes. And she told me about her baby. Cause when you sit down with Naomi Klein, you talk about your cat and she was lovely and she was brilliant. And there's a photo of it somewhere. And I just remember trembling. And then she followed me on Twitter. And I think I screamed for an hour. It's like Billie Jean King levels of excitement. Brenny. I also have a cute picture of me and Naomi Klein and can attest to the fact that she is lovely, though. I love that. I did not charm her enough (laughs) with my cat stories. I should have. I didn't have a cat then. There's always the next time. So fangirling, this was totally premeditated because the great thing about being an academic is that all of your heroes are not famous at all. Um, (laughs) No one cares and no one reads our books. And so it's great. Every single, I have hundreds of my favorite books, literally, that are signed by the author because I'm the only one (laughs) that asked them to do that. So it's great. So I knew I was going to meet Camilla Townsend, who's a distinguished professor at Rutgers, who went and learned Nawa so that she could write about the pre-Columbian conquest of the Aztecs, who is one of the most fantastic writers on indigenous women in history, both Latin American and North American. And she is a a noted introvert. And I saw her at a conference and she was sitting by herself because like I said, we're not famous. We don't even have our pictures on our book jackets. So like we don't know what each other looks like, but we have badges. So I saw her badge. I was like, I think that's her. I looked her up on YouTube. And then I was like very gushy and overflowing about how much my students loved her and how wonderful she was writing both about women and about indigenous peoples. And I just, yeah, I just basically lost my shit. And she was super gracious as as one would expect from Dr. Townsend. So that was my fangirl. Yeah. Oof. I, I still use her YouTube videos, you know, look her up if you're ever interested in like the real story of um, you know, Pocahontas, that is your historian right there. On to shitty, selfish owners. <laughs> so what we're talking about today is not just selfish in a capitalist narrative, but this is also in general bad owners. And we're trying to highlight different overarching ways that these ownership models and owners in particular suck. Brenda, can you give us a little history? Yeah, I mean... Sports for a long time have been professional, if you think about paying players or, you know, ancient wrestling in Rome or something like that. Um, you know, so it's it's not that professionalism was new, but in the 19th century, particularly in Europe, there was the idea of the white male club. So starting the cricket club and the football club, and this is really tied with imperialism and ways in which they're going to export quote-unquote civilization and morality, you know, from the British Empire, from the French Empire to Africa, to Asia, to um, South America in a neo-colonial way. And so these clubs, you know, both domestically and internationally became really um, important to the idea of morality and sport. And basically ownership happens when they start to agree about not allowing players to trade. So the very idea that like I'm, you know, um, sundry football club and you're Leeds football club and we don't want our players to be going back and forth. So we try to make deals and we try to do things like buy certain rights or own certain rights, whether it's the stadium or whether it's players contracts, really the, the foundation of it is athletic labor then that builds to leagues, right? Then we have this community league, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, this is like the 1860s. So FIFA's not even invented yet until, you know, the beginning of the 20th century. And um, more and more in Great Britain, you have individual owners that, you know, buy these teams and monopolize labor. And it's really football first, soccer, you know, that is the first kind of private ownership that you see. And then um, in the U.S., as you get to professional leagues beyond college with football, with North American football, you know, overhand um, and baseball, those became 
um, really popular for individual kind of elite men. And the idea too, a lot of times was that they owned factories or they owned um, agricultural ventures, farms, and that this team that they would start, that they would essentially own from the get-go, would keep workers busy, you know, would give them something to do, would create this voluntary, lovely relationship between owner and player, boss and worker. And um, very often it didn't work that way and they became kind of hotbeds for unions. And the other alternative model in global history is the one in South America and the one exception that we have in the U.S., which is the Green Bay Packers, which is a mutually owned, quote, non-for-profit, even though they're profitable, not-for-profit for one owner kind of model, right? There's like thousands of owners of the Packers. In 1923, they allowed you to buy in. I think it was like five bucks or something like that. Wasn't that cheap back then. <laughs> and and people own a share and then you elect, you know, the board of directors that run it. And so we have the Packers. But what happens, and I'll just wrap up with this, what happens very quickly in the United States and in Europe is that leagues like the NFL bar that ownership. They don't want that. They want individual owners. So the NFL actually has one of its first and foremost roles is that they want singular owners of teams. The Green Bay Packers has a grandfathered exception into that. So this isn't something that, you know, private owners fight against this model all the time because they see it as um, very messy to deal with, you know, not not they're used to dealing with their own, you know, fellow greedy crusty white dudes in the boardroom. They don't want this kind of more democratic <laughs> ownership that's, that messes with their cadre. So anyway, and here we are, you know, um, tons of tax breaks for these guys and they keep on making billions of dollars in this way. I mean, that's mind boggling. So so does that mean we should all go buy shares of Green Bay Packers? Well, they're not for sale necessarily, but, but you know, they had, I think the last time was like 10 years ago or something when they had to like redo the stadium and the sound system or stuff. But yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for Aaron Rodgers' recent activity, we should generally all support the Green Bay Packers. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Lindsay, there's some uh, big news this week in terms of ownership and in leagues. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a couple big stories. Um, the first, and look, I'm not a baseball expert by any means, but I have been following a little bit what's been going on in Major League Baseball because um, the lockout that the owners implemented at the end of last season um, in order to stall the collective bargaining negotiations, uh, it's ongoing. Um, and it's gotten to the point where the first two series of the regular season have been canceled um, by the owners. And it's really important to keep saying that this is not a strike by the players. This is a lockout by the owners. It is the billionaire owners who are doing this. And I mean, essentially, the players are trying to convince the owners to invest in their product and invest in the health of the sport as a whole. And the owners who seem to care much more about their property and, you know, owning the stadium and building things than they do about actually the sport of baseball are refusing to budge. And it's really sad to watch because I think the sport of baseball is is barely recovered from the last big uh, stoppage of play they had in the 90s. And I got to say, I'm very proud of the MLB Players Union. I think the conversation around this has been focused on the owners and on these billionaires who are falsely saying that they're losing money when most clubs uh, make money even before games are played. And that's the problem. These owners don't necessarily have to sell tickets. They don't necessarily have to put... Um, invest in putting a good product on the field because they make money without it. I just think it's so fucking sad that it's gotten to this point where the people who are kind of the shepherds of the sport because they control the purse strings, right, are refusing to invest in it, refusing to give more money to the to the players at the bottom end of the wrong, whether we're talking minor leagues 
I mean, most baseball players don't. I think it was like 40% make under 1 million a year and their careers are very short in the majors, right? So it's it's just the power and balance here is staggering. Kudos to the Players Association for not giving in, not taking a shit sandwich of a deal, which is what <laughs> ESPN reporter Jeff Passan called what the owners were uh, proposing last. But I also, in talking to the baseball people in my life, like there's just this sadness over this. The owners just don't seem to care that their sport is not being played. Like, we all know this is a business, but you're supposed to love the sport, right? There's, there's like, like this passion for the sport and love for the game is supposed to be what ties everything together. Well, yeah. I mean, I had a question for Lindsay and um, thinking about ownership more broadly in women's sports as well. Do you think that that's the thing that the ability to have a losing team and still make money, you know, the fact that the Mets is like, I don't know, the second most valuable franchise. Is that part of the problem that they're willing to carry losses and speculate these teams, whether it's tax breaks or something else? Yeah, look, it's really, it's tough, right? It's a tough button because the thing you always hear about women's sports you know that the business isn't solid enough right whereas then you've got these men's sports that have been around forever and the business aspects of things is really healthy right and yet you're seeing I I can't say similar lack of investment because there's no comparison um, between the two but I just think it's just It's really fucked up. And if you look at the baseball rules, like so many involve, there's so many loopholes and ways for these owners to count the number of starts or the number of times a player has been on the roster or is called up and to manipulate these things in bad faith so that the players get less money, right? Or not call up, not focus on developing players because um, they don't want to spend more money. And it's really staggering. I mean, these owners are literally saying that they aren't making money, that they're that the pandemic hit them so hard, but it's just trying to get them to run their business in good faith for the overall good of the sport. And this is overall not much money to them. And I just don't, I don't understand. To me, it's just with all these negotiations, right? Like it's power, right? They just want more control over exactly what decisions and exactly how much they can manipulate their books. They can manipulate their players. They can manipulate everything in their domain. Whereas the players are trying to make rules that force them to, you know, invest more and help fuel the entire ecosystem, right? And I, if you look at lots of sports, the minor leagues, the development leagues, whatever you call it, right? Somebody has to fuel these because you need these to make the upper echelon to the sport healthy, right? Players need ways to come up, right? The whole sports world needs developmental leagues, who should be paying for those, right? Because you're probably, it's not going to always be the gate tickets that are bringing it in. It's not going to be, they're not going to be getting the big television contracts. It should be the billionaire owners. That's who should be paying for it. The people making the most money off of the sport are the ones who should be paying for those lower leagues because those lower leagues benefit everyone at the end of the day. Well, owners will happily drive drive a good thing into the ground. I mean, that's all this shit about capitalism <laughs> being you know, efficient is such bullshit. It's so stupid. Like, you know, like I, what, like we can't even get tests when there's like high COVID rates, like whatever about capitalism being efficient. And like, this is a perfect example. Like take a look at what, (laughs) at what UEFA's Champions League, like what the clubs are trying to do. Like they're just like, they already make a zillion dollars on it. And now whether it's the Super League or they're trying to expand it from 32 to 36 to, I don't know, 188. I mean, the Champions League will just never stop playing because it's just like, oh, maybe we'll be like the NBA and like we'll just have 100,040 billion games a year. And it's just (laughs) fucking stupid. And like, so I'm just also want to say like owners. I think we give them credit often for making good decisions too. Sometimes when it's just like, no, just greed will steer them directly into a place where they can ruin a good thing, whether it's a particular tournament and shows a total misunderstanding of the sport itself. Like you cannot make 
soccer like basketball. It is fundamentally different. You know what I mean? And so whenever they're like basketball eyeing how the Champions League is working, and they're always reporters that, you know, can't even say UEFA, by the way, you know? And so I heard UEFA this past weekend of a reporter, and I was just shocked. That's offensive. I think that's Islamophobic. So, I mean, anyway, I, I just also want to say to Lindsay's point, like – the greed is so apparent when you look at some of the illogical decisions that they're willing to make, even when contrary to reason. I appreciate this. And I, I, I think it's important as we talk about owners, and Lindsay mentioned this, it's an important part of development to actually grow it. So Lindsay, let's talk about growing pains. Yeah, I mean, on kind of the other end of the spectrum, as the MLB, you know, you've got, but it's the same spectrum, right? We say other end of the spectrum, but the spectrums, uh, you know, there's a lot of linkage. You've got what's going on in the WNBA right now. And Howard Megdal, who I'm in an interview, he will be on the show on Thursday's interview. So we'll go deep into his big feature for Sports Illustrated, which came out last week. And in the feature, one of the things he reported among many was that uh, last season, Joseph and Clara Sai, who are the owners of the New York Liberty and the Brooklyn Nets, they chartered flights for their team throughout the second half of the season. And this was against the, the CBA because in the, the CBA, the player signed in 2000. It specified, you know, for competitive advantage that uh, everyone was going to fly commercial still. You know, it's against the rules for one owner to be providing this for his team. Anyways, the WNBA ended up fining the team $500,000 for this. Obviously, this created a lot of uproar for a league fining a team owner for treating his players too well, right? Like, it's just not something we typically see and seems like a very, very bizarre scandal. But I think a lot of it just goes back to, once again, power struggles and ownership struggles and a unclear picture of where the league is headed and what it possibly could be. It's growing pains. Um, since 2019, you've had four really, really um, high-profile owners coming in to take over in Brooklyn, Minnesota, Atlanta, and Vegas. And, you know, Mark Davis, for one, his, the, the owner in Vegas, has been very open about how unhappy he is with how little he's allowed to pay his players and um, the limits on how well he's supposed to treat the players. Um, but at the same time, you run into problems because there is a collective bargaining agreement for a reason. And a lot of the owners elsewhere in the W have been around for a long time and shepherded the league through tumultuous, tumultuous seasons of life. And which way is the league going to go now? Is it going to let these owners invest in the team and maybe threaten a little bit competitive balance or force ownership groups that don't have as much money to, you know, either raise that money or bring in other investors or do some of the things we've seen in the NWSL, right? We've seen in the NWSL bring in big investorship kind of fundraising types of groups for specific owners. Do we need to see more of that in the W so that everyone can kind of keep up? I don't know, but I think it's very, very interesting. And I wrote about this in Power Plays that is as frustrating as Howard's report was. Like, it's all really good problems to have, right? Like, growing is uncomfortable. Growing is hard. Whether, I don't care whether you're, it's a teenager going through puberty. Like, we know that shit isn't easy, right? And growing um, whether we're trying to grow personally, you know, or, you know, any type of, or in our business, any type of change and growth is uncomfortable. I think the W is going through a very uncomfortable period right now, but it's very necessary. And it's really good to have owners who want to invest more, aren't afraid to talk about wanting to invest more. And I think it really puts the fire on other owners. My question is like, can the league, can enough, they get enough owners willing to do this? to make it uniform, and also how do you prevent it from turning into an MLB situation where you've just got all these billionaires in there who don't give a shit? I mean, then we can get into the topic of owners who are, it's not part of growing pains, they're just pains. 
when I say pains, I talk, I'm talking about blatant racism, whether it's homophobia, transphobia, all these horrible things that do play a part. Because, I mean, you know, that happens with owners and individual owners in particular, like Kelly Loeffler, former owner of the Atlanta Dream, WNBA. Um, fortunately, it was sold to Renee Montgomery, Larry Gottesteiner, and Susanna Bear in February 2021. But we've chronicled how terrible Kelly Loeffler was, and so did much of American media, in that, you know, it was so much that the players rose up to support her opponent in political, who's running for political office. Uh, Reverend Ralph Warnock, who ended up winning that election. So I think that's really interesting. But also, she was bad. And when we talk about bad apples, that's a rotten to the core apple. But fortunately, you know, the ownership model changed and we're seeing, we love to see black women owning shit. So like, literally, Renee Montgomery owning, owning this, being part owner of this team is really important. I mean, there's other examples. There's many examples of racist owners. Another one that comes to mind, Donald Sterling, you know, former LA Clippers owner who ended up selling it to Steve Balmer, after Sterling was found to be a racist asshole, he was banned from the NBA and faced a $2.5 million fine for a vulgar diatribe, which was actually caught on tape. I don't know if people remember that, but it's like, for me, one of the one of the foremost examples. Also, the Ricketts family. I don't do baseball either, except for when it comes to the Blue Jays, because I look really good in that color of blue. But the Ricketts family, owners of the Chicago Cubs and, and, and actually other teams, like they're famous for their Islamophobia. I remember Joe Ricketts, his Facebook was posted, like screenshots of his Facebook with really horrible, xenophobic, anti-Muslim sentiment. They still own it, though. I mean, then you think about how tough it is to actually get owners out unless there's like this kind of movement against it. But right now, the Ricketts family is still being rich. And as far as I know, allegedly being Islamophobic. Which kind of leads us to the next, you know, something else I wanted to get into is different ways of holding owners accountable, whether it's fans, public outcry. Like right now, uh, Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club in the UK, in England, is in the process of selling the club. It's in trust right now to the foundation because of the fact that he's Russian and has ties to Putin and is decided and released a statement last week saying this was in the best interest of the club. He invested billions of dollars, including taking on debt when he took over the club, but has said that he's sad to have to part ways, but he feels this is in the best interest of the club. I don't know if that's to make us supposed to jerk a tear or something there. I, I, I wasn't feeling really sad. He can go crying to his bag of millions of dollars. Brenda, talk to me about more different ways of holding down owners accountable. Well, it's interesting, right? Because we look at businesses all the time with owners and we don't demand that they're good people. So it's kind of a fascinating thing how in sports we're able to like, because they have such a public face, it actually gives us a, a window into what, you know, corporate anything looks like. Um, and I, I mean, there's something about it that feels like fans are more than consumers, right? And so we've seen a lot with supporters groups that are able to really um, do things like boycott buying season tickets, um, find ways to protest within the stadiums that have been really interesting. And that's one of the exciting things that I think about soccer in the U.S. is right now is what those fans are doing. So the um, Portland Thorns and Timbers have um, been responding to what happened in the toxic, sexist culture of those teams by trying to hold Merritt Paulson, the owner, accountable. And, you know, he's actually met with them. And I'm I'm not giving him, you know, too many props. I'm actually giving their kind of constant pressure a lot of props uh, that he's he's met with the fans. Can you imagine? You know, can you can you actually imagine that Donald Sterling like, sitting down fans. with concerned? You know, back then, let's so, have a town hall meeting. Family, hall. you know, um, and Merritt Paulson isn't like more virtuous. This is just a matter of soccer culture and the way that fans are organized. So. Um, that's been pretty exciting to see, and I think you know that's something that hopefully more sports can can start to get on that bandwagon of let's organize fans in such a way that they're able to pressure owners. Yeah, I love that, and also you know it leads us as well. We can incorporate alternative models of ownership, like for example, and I will be transparent about this. Dr. Brenda Elsie and Shereen Ahmed are invested in Lewis 
FC football club. So it is a community-based, community-owned football club in the UK. So I just wanted to be clear about that. But they're an alternative model to ownership, where it is literally you have shareholders and a part and you can own this and there's a sense of accountability and ownership and investment and importance. And I mean, I'm not saying it elevates it. It's not going to be mad at the Montreal Canadiens more if I owned a part of them. But my point is, is that there is a, a connection and connection is important. Also, there's a couple of the Peterborough Pete's hockey team. It's one of the oldest hockey teams in the Ontario Hockey League. They're also a community-based ownership. And I think that's really interesting because in hockey, that's not common. And they're in the minors, yes, but I think it sets a really interesting precedent on how involved the community is in those things, whether it's events or whether there's a discussion about the culture of that game. Brian, what about other ones? Well, I mean, like I said, the the whole, almost all of the top South American teams, um, and actually just today, this week, Man City's ownership group is trying to buy Atletico Mineiro in, in Brazil. And so there's an active struggle going on in these places where privatized individual owners are trying to convince um, the boards of directors and the fans to accept this private ownership model. So, um, yeah, these these exist all over, and there's hybrids as well in in South America. Not not so much like the Mexican league, but I'm talking, you know, Boca Juniors, um, Flamengo, Fluminense, uh, Colo Colo is in a struggle in Chile. Like there are all these clubs that for a hundred and you know, 20 years have been mutually owned and have become such big businesses that people are like, how could it be that a non-for-profit can run like this? We must have the efficiency. And this is why I argue again of like an individual Merit Paulson. (laughs) You know what I mean? So so that's the model um, that's really common there. And and just to emphasize once more, and I know we've had other shows about this, but whatever, I'm just going to keep saying it. Just because it's not for profit doesn't mean it's not profitable. These are incredibly profitable clubs. It's not like they're, you know, struggling for existence in Boca Juniors. <laughs> Lens? Yeah, I mean, you know, the big one that we've talked about a lot is Athletes Unlimited, which, um, you know, has got two kind of owners and investors at the helm, but uh, they have these short seasons um, of different sports. There's been softball, um, volleyball, and then most re- uh, lacrosse, and then most recently basketball. And um, the teams don't have owners or even coaches. Like players are empowered to kind of run things for themselves. They get a portion of the profits. I think they're kind of, I'm not sure exactly how it works with them kind of being part owners with so many players and so many different, you know, leagues. But I know that they are uh, involved on that level. They're involved in all of the decision-making processes. And the way Athletes Unlimited works is it's, the teams change every week. So the players are captains. They get individual points and points from team wins. And there's a leaderboard for the individual athletes. And it, it shuffles after every year, after every week. After every week, a new player becomes captain and picks the teams. So teams change every week. So there can't be an owner, right? <laughs> like you can't have just like an owner. And it just really mixes things up. And I've been skeptical about it, but it's really cool and it's still going. And I think I'm really excited to see how it grows because it is, it's such a streamlined model compared to, you know, a WNBA or something. And it also, this is what made me get it. The seasons it holds are about six weeks long. So it doesn't have to compete with the other leagues, but athletes unlimited model by being more streamlined can help push the entire sport forward. Yeah. And one of the things I think about here is leadership and what that looks like in different leagues and different teams. And I'm just going to wrap this up with a really important quote. The thing that motivates me is a very common form of motivation. And that is with other folks counting on me, it is so easy to be motivated. And that's from Jeff Bezos. I don't know what to say. I don't know. (laughs) This is a joke. This is the actual quote. Don't worry. But I just wanted to see your faces. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Thank you. No, the actual quote. Fight for the things that you care about and do it in a way that will lead others to join you. And that's from Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week on our interview, which drops on Thursday, Lindsay chats with Howard Megdal about all things women's basketball, including his explosive feature on Sports Illustrated on the fractured state of WNBA ownership and what drama women's college basketball is bringing to March. And we, we experience this every day, every day in the women's sports world of like, do we celebrate the win, even though it's belated and it's limited and it seems begrudging? Or do we talk about how much more there is to go? And this is always the balance. And the strike. answer is yes. The answer is always we do both. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's move on to everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Lindsay, what are you torching? Yeah, um, a regular in this um, thing is U.S. soccer, but it's a little bit different this time. So we did just have U.S. soccer elections for the president this past weekend. Cindy Parlo Cohn did win re-election, so we are very happy for Cindy. Um, so she will serve another term as the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation. However, Carlos Cordero, the former president um, and Cohn's predecessor, who was basically forced to resign after his incredibly sexist and demeaning strategy for fighting equal pay, the women's equal pay lawsuit, uh, came to light in 2020. Uh, he ran against her, and she only won 52.9% of the weighted vote from the National Council. That means Carlos Cordero almost won. <laughs> uh, this was the closest final ballot in U.S. soccer history. Among other things, he got the endorsement of the Youth Council, and I think that's very disturbing. Um, he oversaw U.S. soccer during a period where inequities were heightened and abuse was enabled. And it's scary to think how close he was to winning re-election. I also want to burn the fact that there was a proposal up for a vote that the president of U.S. soccer become a paying job with a salary. It is right now a volunteer position. You might think, Lindsay, why do you want rich people to get richer? No, no. I just want people paid for doing jobs because that helps weed out corruption and it helps widen the amount of people who can apply for said job. Just like internships are very exploitative to people trying to break into fields, having these incredibly powerful positions be volunteer positions also takes a bunch of people out of the running. Um, this proposal got voted down and people said they wanted to keep the purity of the position. Anytime people are arguing for purity, you know, that's bullshit. And it usually is a euphemism for corruption. And I want to keep this power and balance in play. So just want to burn Carlos Cordero almost getting elected again. And the fact that U.S. soccer isn't a paid position. I'm not saying the U.S. soccer president should get paid millions, but I just think it's a full-time job. Like, let's let it be a full-time job. It's an important job. <laughs> so burn. 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 I'm going to go next. Um, this news was really, you know, worrisome. And I'm going to start with saying that it was reported that Brittany Griner was actually in detained 
in Russia while trying to return um, to the United States. She plays in Russia in the off season, as many athletes do play abroad. Um, but what ended up happening is she was allegedly detained in Russia while trying to exit the country because she had vape cartridges with substances that are legal in Russia. Now, then it was further reported on that she's actually been there for three weeks. And there's concern about this for many different reasons. There's concern that she could potentially be used as a political pawn because she's like quite a star, like huge star. Secondly, she's a queer black woman who's like gender nonconforming and there's concerns for her safety, obviously. Um, Adrian Law just had a really great Twitter thread breaking this down and why she is uncomfortable with the way things are rolling out because she feels that, you know, Brittany Griner usually travels back at the same time that she was expected by the Russian authorities. So it's a really interesting thread to read and to ponder over. I mean, of course, first and foremost, you know, we're concerned about Brittany Griner's safety and that she get back to her team. But also the WNBA and Phoenix release statements, Mercury said over the weekend that they are aware and they're in contact with authorities that they need to be in contact with to ensure her safety and that that's of paramount importance. But I want to take this because if there's even a sliver of chance that a black queer athlete is being used as a political pawn in, in which all sounds scary and dangerous with all the, everybody involved in this. I can't help but note, why does she have to play a pawn in the first place? Like give her the money. So athletes don't have to do that in the off season. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. That's where my mind goes. I hate all of this. I'm concerned for her safety. And I'm, you know, I'm obviously thinking about her family and her teammates at this time who must be very concerned. Um, and we'll keep you updated with what's happening. And I want to take all of these systems that put athletes, particularly those from racialized and marginalized communities into vulnerable situations. Fucking hate all of it. Want to take it and want to burn it all down. Burn. 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 Bren. Okay. Well, this is good. This is on a related note. Um, I want to burn the well it's like a complicated burn I guess um but death threats to players children and family members that are Russian Alex Ovechkin in particular the NHL player for the Washington Capitals has received Tons, according to his agent, um, Daniel Milstein, who's actually a Ukrainian Jew, <laughs> and uh, working with him and has said, please stop this. This is terrifying. We've had to get extra security for him. It's not just him. Um, the Capitals have four Russian players. Lots of teams have any number of them. And um, evidently, it's just been so bad, the threats um, to the actual clubs. The Washington Post ran a story on it. Some other places have. And um, it's really distressing. Now, that said, Ovechkin has, over the years, expressed his, you know, very hearty support for Putin. So I understand that he is subject and should be subject to, you know, whatever people want to say, you've enabled this dictator, war criminal, whatever you, you know, however you want to frame it, people have a right to hold him accountable. But I mean, I don't know about you all's family and you all's parents, but with all respect to my parents, I'm really glad that I'm not responsible for everything they've done. Can we please stop sending any kind of like, I don't, the most, are there lighthearted death threats to children? I mean, no. So <laughs> can you just stop any of it? Should just be absolutely stopped. And um, it was really heartbreaking to read all of the different kinds of posts that are out there on social media. So I want to burn people's reaction um, as much as I'm disgusted, I guess, by his support for um, Putin. So burn. Burn. Now let's move on to some light. Let's hold up some incredible people this week. I'm going to start with Paralympians. And there's so many we can't name in this segment, but I wanted to highlight a few. First of all, Oksana Masters won the first gold for the U.S. in the women's biathlon 6K sitting, six months after two golds in Tokyo in cycling. Masters was born in Ukraine and was adopted to the U.S. as a child. She had been posting on social media about Ukraine and often in these games saying she is racing for two countries that make me whole. 
two Olympics within six months. That's that's wild. Um, Cecile Hernandez of France and Brenna Huckabee of the USA are the snowboarders who almost didn't get to compete because they were quote unquote too disabled. They competed in the snowboard cross LL2 classification and both medaled. Hernandez won gold and Huckabee won bronze. Oksana Shishkova, one of many Ukrainians to win gold in the first days of the Paralympics, she has two. She took gold in the women's biathlon sprint as well as a long-distance vision-impaired races. She said, quote, medals mean nothing compared to the lives and relatives of people who have suffered already through war, unquote. Brenda? Yeah, shout out to Ukrainian tennis champion Alina Svitolina, who defeated Russia's Anastasia Podopova at the Monterrey Open March 1st. She pledged to donate her prize money to Ukraine's military resistance and said, quote, I was on a mission for my country. Linz, who's next? Tiana Hawkins, the inaugural Athletes Unlimited basketball champion. Hawkins finished the season with 6,836 points, sealing her Athletes Unlimited championship with a thrilling triple overtime win for her team. Love seeing Tiana Hawkins thrive. Love her. Speaking of thriving, who's next? Brenda. Leila Fernandez, Canadian tennis player who won the Monterrey Classic. The teenager rallied from 4-1 down in the third set to win her second WTA title. Awesome. Lens. Charlie Turner Thorne, the head coach of Arizona State women's basketball team, announced her retirement after an incredible 25 years at the helm. Um, we are, will miss her and are happy for her. Can I get a drum roll, please? I always want to say, can I get a what, what? But because that's what I think of, but that's not what I need. I need a drum roll. Can I get a drum roll, please? <laughs> Congratulations to the first Black Indigenous owners of a team in the Premier Hockey Federation. Among the owners are former NHLer Anthony Stewart, Hockey Hall of Famer Canada's Angela James, Bernice Carnegie, and former NHL coach Ted Nolan. The full list of co-owners will actually be released when the sale is complete, but we love to see racialized players on the ice. Also, as officials, as fans, and certainly in the front offices and owner suites as excellent owners. Friends, what is good? Lindsay, let's start with you. Yeah. Um, over the weekend, I was super lucky. I got to go to Maryland um, to Airbnb with two of my closest college friends. And they are my favorite people to do nothing with. <laughs> like, uh, we just kind of hung out in the cabin and ate and drank and let our dogs run around and watch Love is Blind, which... I have a lot of thoughts on Love is Blind season two. Please, if you would like to discuss it, I'm here. It's all I want to talk about. I'm going to go next. I actually just got back from my first in-person tournament as volleyball mom. Very excited. It's been two years since I've watched my son Salahuddin play. He's senior in high school. So he we're making big decisions. He's making big decisions. And I'm trying to not cry at all the possibilities he's choosing from. Um, I love watching him play. Um, I get a lot of excitement out of it. I didn't grow up playing volleyball. Like, I enjoy it. It's actually not a sport that I thought was super calming for my anxiety because, like, every set and every play is, like, nerve-wracking. But he's wonderful and he's really good at it. And his team is playing in Premier Division, which is really exciting. Um, we didn't do as well as we hoped, but we still have a couple tournaments left. And fingers crossed that we do well in those. Uh, this particular tournament that I went to in Ottawa where I saw my friend Keith Bennett from my program, he came to be a volleyball mom with me. He's wonderful. And my friend Claire Hanna, um, who we've had on the show before, we hung out in Ottawa. Um, this uh, particular tournament was actually canceled because of the convoy that was taking over the city of Ottawa a couple of weeks ago. So it's nice that that has been, you know, sort of less there. Uh, I'm not going to say they're all cleared out because they're not. But anyways, the city is no longer under this type of siege. And so I'm happy about that. I'm also wanted to shout out uh, X University, formerly known as Ryerson. I got a chance to guest lecture in my friend Dan Robson's class last week. We were co-instructors in the first semester. I'm not teaching this semester. Um, but my class was exclusively online. And I got a chance to see them in person. And I recognized all their faces, even with their masks on. And it was lovely to see them. 
I absolutely love these students. I've made some decisions about what I want for my future based on the experience teaching them, you know, so reporting sports section three, I love you all. And thank you for being engaged and having me sit there and talk about stuff. And you sometimes you get into things you don't think you're going to get into and it really inspires you. I get a lot of energy and excitement and, you know, inspiration from these students. So I'm a big, big fan. Just one last thing. I did a my first video essay for CBC Sports for International Women's Day, which is coming out. And I'm very excited about it because there's some things that I want to do in, you know, and work on in skill and doing video essays was definitely one of them. And just quick shout out to Sarah Jenkins and Steve, Steve Semes, who helped who were the producers on it. I'm excited for y'all to see it. Brenda, you want to bring us home? So first, I am ridiculous and didn't realize I could switch my Twitter to see just tweets in order of when they were coming in, that somehow Twitter had switched me to the algorithm where I see like the most promoted. And so I switched that back with that little button on the top right. And thank fucking God, because all of a sudden I went from being annoyed all day to being like, oh, look, they published that book and they published this arcane thought and they were all really good and wonderful and I remembered why there was a bunch of people that I followed because I really respected and was interested in what they said but I hadn't seen anything from them in like three months or whenever Twitter screwed me over um so I was really thrilled by that oh the vet I took my cat Leo to the vet she's really nice she told me how good looking he was um so we just sat there and talked about that for like 10 minutes and I was really excited um I, she's probably lying. She probably says that to everyone. It's fine. Um, but I believed it to be true at the moment. So that was really fun. And also there's a new book by Nobel Prize winner Olga Tokachuk um, or Tokarchuk. You can um, look her up ever if you're interested. She originally wrote a much easier in the sense of less time consuming novel called Draw, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. And I'm sure that was on my What's Good. I am sure. She's a, I guess you would call her an eco-feminist novelist. Um, and she's just fucking great. And she has this new book called The Books of Jacob, which is like 700 pages, which means I get to keep her with me for a very long time. And um, she's amazing. If you're a middle-aged woman, I don't know how many of our fans are out there in like their 40s or whatever, because I think I'm the oldest of the crew. But like, go and fucking read that book. I mean, it's about like that transition and being ignored and how really evil you can be as a middle-aged woman without anyone noticing. Brenda, if you had like a book talk on TikTok account, I would a hundred percent subscribe and pay for that content. What are we watching? We will be watching the Paralympic games, which are on CBC sports and also on NBC Peacock. So we will also be watching the PHF uh, on Twitch and on certain televising in addition to PWHP upcoming showcases as well. So I'm very excited about that. There was just one in DC and an upcoming that's soon to be announced. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstag. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and tune in. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown, burn on, and not out. And I'm sorry, you-